You are listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Hypertension, what is the ideal number? Welcome to the Clinician Roundtable. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino from the section of cardiology at the University of Chicago Medical Center, your host today on Clinician Roundtable. With me today is Dr. Henry Black, the clinical professor of internal medicine at the New York University School of Medicine. Dr. Black is an internationally known expert on hypertension and has been involved with the Joint National Committee and other groups in coming up with guidelines on how we should detect, evaluate, and treat hypertension. Dr. Black, welcome to the show today. Thanks very much, Matt. Great to be here. I thought first that we would review the goals for blood pressure since they seem to be changing. What are the numbers that we should strive for currently as based on the guidelines? Well, first of all, we can really define this and think about it in two ways. A, when the diagnosis occurs, and then B, if someone is hypertensive, where do we treat them to? And I'll begin with the second. Right now, it's our current recommendation, not necessarily with the evidence, all the evidence we would like, but that a patient with hypertension should have his or her blood pressure lower to below 140 over 90. This guidance changes in a few special situations, people with the highest risk. For example, someone with diabetes or chronic renal disease, and soon perhaps with coronary artery disease, we are now recommending that their goal blood pressure be less than 130 and less than 80. Now, where did the less than 130 over 80 actually come from? Is this just an opinion from a panel, or are there actual treatment studies that suggest this is the better ideal number for these groups? What we did in, in the sixth Joint National Committee report in 1997 was try to operationalize, if you'll pardon that expression, what we understood about that higher-risk people are likely to benefit more from more aggressive blood pressure control. So we actually chose at that point less than 130 over 85, which was 10 over 5 millimeters of mercury less than we were recommending for non-diabetics. turned out that the United Kingdom prospective diabetes study was looking at two different treatment goals, not as low as that, and there was a 10 over 5 difference in the end of that study, which resulted in significant improvement or reduction, that is to say, in all of the diabetes complications. So that 10 over 5 was a good call. Now, we have revised that downward a little bit based somewhat on what other guideline committees have said. The American Diabetes Association and the National Kidney Foundation both recommended less than 130 and less than 80. And we saw no reason when we did the seventh Joint National Committee report to really challenge whether it should be 80 or 85. I should say that in one trial, at least, the ASK study, the African-American study of kidney disease, which was in non-diabetics, an attempt to show that a goal of less than 120 was better than a goal of less than 140. They were unable to do that. This is still a work in progress. Now, I understand from epidemiology that there's kind of a new rule from this type of data that has come out, and that's the 20 over 10 rule, that every time you go up 20 millimeters of mercury systolic or 10 millimeters of mercury diastolic, there's a doubling of risk. And this doubling seems to start around 115 over 75. If that's the case, shouldn't this be the ideal goal to reach for our high-risk patients down to that much lower level? Well, I think it should be if we, if we had a treatment trial to prove it. There's a big difference between what we learn from epidemiology and what turns out to be the case when we do an actual trial. Epidemiology sometimes misleads us. I think the issue about estrogens and, and heart disease, for example, is, is one of those examples. But the, the trial you refer to was over a million participants 
12 years of observation and very clear relationship regardless of age, which begins at about 115 over 75. And for every 20 over 10 above, stroke and coronary heart disease mortality doubles. So that's a pretty solid example. Unfortunately, though, we don't have a trial yet to, to first of all, see whether we can get down to 115 over 75 or less. We may start to see more problems as we end up needing four or five or six drugs even to achieve that. So right now, our guideline recommendations try to find a way to get the point across that more aggressive therapy in high-risk people is useful. You are listening to Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals, and today my guest is Dr. Henry Black, and we are talking about the optimal goal for the treatment of hypertension. And Dr. Black, I'd like to talk a little bit more about specific patient groups and specifically coronary artery disease patients. You suggested that this higher risk group may be appropriate for lower blood pressure goals. But the concern is this so-called J-curve, meaning that if we aggressively treat somebody with fixed coronary disease, can we paradoxically decrease coronary blood flow and actually cause ischemia in these patients? Yes, that's been a concern and a concern for quite some time. I think, as you all know, the, the coronary arteries are perfused in diastole, and there's real concern that if you lower diastolic pressure too far, you'll underperfuse the heart and then cause more trouble than you're going to save by actually lowering blood pressure that far. That's a nice theoretical construct. It's been tough to prove. In a couple of studies, for example, in the SHEP study, which was an isolated systolic hypertension study, you had to get below 60 diastolic before you saw any increase whatsoever. In other trials as well, there's been some concern that you see this. But overall, I think the, there's no question that you do more good than harm trying to be aggressively treated. Now, if people are dizzy, that's certainly one thing. If they start to get angina or arrhythmias, that's another thing. But overall, I think this is a concern for the unusual case and not for the population. So we are, we are clearly recommending more aggressive therapy. The Camelot study, which was a study of patients with known coronary heart disease, those who had their blood pressure lowered further were in fact benefited. Yes, that was one study I was going to ask you about because that study did, I think it's one of the only studies that had blood pressures uh, well below what the current goal is. This was a coronary artery disease population, and yet my understanding from that study is that there was further benefit with more aggressive therapy? Yes, there was, and that's probably the only specific study that looked at this population. Our more aggressive recommendations for that group were based primarily on Camelot and also on some judgment that uh, we would probably benefit people as we lower blood pressure. Plaque uh, area was reduced and, and outcomes were better as well. The other group I wanted to ask you about is the African-American population. Uh, we know that this population uh, tends to develop high blood pressure at an earlier age, and especially kidney disease is at a much higher risk in this population. And there have been some groups that have suggested maybe different goals for African-American patients. What do you think should be the goal for this group, and is there enough data to justify being more aggressive just based on race? Well, the International Society of Hypertension in Blacks, or ISHIP, had recommended a lower treatment goal in African-Americans than non-African-Americans. However, the ASK study, which I talked about earlier, African-American study of kidney disease, was unable to show that you really benefited by going lower. And that's a small study overall, only about 1,000 or so participants. And so that's not enough to necessarily overturn that recommendation. 
But I think the recommendation was wise, but like many recommendations, we have to validate it in a trial to be sure it's correct. Another group of patients that I think most of us find very difficult to treat is the elderly. And years ago, isolated systolic hypertension was felt to be adaptive and needed for cerebral perfusion. But maybe you can address that a little bit. What is the reason that blood pressure goes up as we age, and is it needed, or is it something that we should be aggressively treating? Well, back in the day when when I went to medical school, I was taught, as a lot of people of my generation were, that your systolic pressure is appropriately 100 plus your age, and you shouldn't worry about it. So someone who's 60 years of age should have a, a systolic pressure of 160. Someone who's 80 should be 180. And that was the genesis of the of the SHEP, or the systolic hypertension, the elderly program, and two further studies, one done in Europe and one done in China, that addressed that question. We began SHEP, and I was head of the Yale site at the time, back in the mid-'80s. There were 16 investigators or 16 investigative sites. Half of us thought the study was going to be stopped early because there was clear benefit. The other half thought the study was going to be stopped early because there was clear risk in, in, in treatment. turned out the study went to its end because it turned out that by lowering pressure in people who began at 160 or more and had diastolics less than 90, had a 36% reduction in strokes, similar but not quite as a robust reduction in coronary events, and about a 50% reduction in heart failure, which is a particular problem for, for older individuals. The Sistura trial, using a different agent, they used a dihydropyridine calcium antagonist. We had used chlorothaladone as our first drug, put to rest that concern. The reason that systolic goes up and diastolic goes down has to do with increased stiffening of large arteries, and that is, in fact, a, a physiologic response that we see as we age, but it, there's no question that those individuals do benefit from treatment. Was there any danger found in this group of elderly patients? In other words, is there a subset where cerebral perfusion seemed to be compromised? Well, it was extremely unusual to see in any problems, from, in fact, from treatment. There, there was some risk, as I mentioned earlier, if your diastolic up below 60. But we began an average diastolic blood pressure of 77 and dropped that down to about 68 or 69 without any overall problems. When we do a trial like that and when we make recommendations, there are always certainly going to be exceptions, so we have to watch carefully. What I'm afraid of is that because of the exception, people are going to, are going to be hesitant to treat all the people who are going to benefit, and that's not a good thing either. A lot of times when we try to treat some of these elderly patients, they complain of side effects or they do complain of feeling lightheaded. Is there a certain level then that we should level off the blood pressure, or do we keep gradually trying to ratchet it down to the, below that 140 number? Well, there are certain concerns that the cuffed blood pressures that we measure don't really accurately reflect what's going on inside the arteries. This has been called pseudohypertension. I think, as you, as you know, we, what we do is we squeeze the artery together with a cuff, and then we listen for noises. If the artery is very stiff and usually needs to be calcified for this to matter, you need more pressure to reduce it in order to begin to see what we can hear. Now, those people probably have a much lower intraarterial pressure than we measure by our indirect sigma manometry. Those are very unusual individuals. If you really think that's the case, and you should think about it when somebody doesn't seem to have, be having any response except getting dizzier and dizzier and dizzier as you give more medicine. Then you either should try to use intraarterial measurements, which are very complicated to get, or even get some indirect measurements using echo technology to get some sense of what the real blood pressure is. Is there a role also for pushing lifestyle modification in this elderly group? Does that augment our medications that we use? Well, lifestyle modification in all groups is helpful. I think 
there, we often get into a, an unfortunate argument as if you can only do one and not the other and, or vice versa. That isn't the case at all. These are adjunctive and synergistic. It's much easier to control blood pressure in someone who's active, isn't eating too much salt, and isn't overweight. That's sometimes hard to do, but I think it's worth emphasizing always. However, I wouldn't depend on it in someone who had a systolic pressure of more than 160 or a diastolic of, of more than 100, 100 or more, because there's a certain concern right now that if we don't get blood pressure reduced promptly, and by promptly I mean within three to six months, we're putting people at risk. <clears throat> so we can't wait forever to have a lifestyle modification get us where we want to be. I want to thank Dr. Henry Black, who has been our guest, and we have been discussing hypertension and the ideal numbers. I am Dr. Matthew Sorrentino. You have been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.